HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Let's make a kelp smoothie. First, I'm going to blend up a little dried kelp into a super fine powder. It is a great plant-based source of that delicious fishy seafood flavor. That's my roommate, Kara Flynn. She spent the last six months researching proteins in seaweed. Here's what she has to say about the benefits of kelp. It is relatively sustainable as it occurs naturally in abundance in many oceans all around the world and it's relatively easy to harvest, collect, and can be sold in a wide abundance. Armed with the newfound knowledge of kelp's benefits, I made myself a kelp smoothie with dried kelp, oat milk, kale, banana, mango, and maple syrup. Here were my thoughts. On first impression, it's not bad at all, much better than I was expecting. It really tastes like a super healthy superfood smoothie. That was HRN intern Aviva Futornik making and tasting her very first kelp smoothie. Historical records point to the consumption of edible sea vegetables as far back as the 6th century Asuka Empire in Japan. As a carbon-negative crop packed with nutrients, sea vegetables are now lauded for their positive environmental impact. This week on Meat and 3, we're exploring seafood and sustainability. While seafood production and consumption continue to increase, the ocean's finite supply is vulnerable to overfishing and environmental degradation. We look at what it means to sustainably farm, manage, and capture seafood. Follow along as we travel from the Pacific to the Atlantic Ocean and meet the farmers, restaurateurs, and organizations striving to protect both sea life and the communities dependent on the ocean's resources. I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, and this is Meat and 3 on HRN. Meat and 3. Meat and 3. Meat and 3. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and 3. We kicked off today's episode with a taste of a kelp smoothie, 
And now let's take a look at how this salty, slippery green algae is grown. Seaweed is more diverse and resilient than most people realize and includes more than 10,000 species. Sophie Talkov Burko speaks with Catherine O'Hare of Daybreak Seaweed, a woman owned company harvesting seaweed and turning it into seasonings and snacks. Daybreak Seaweed got its start in Northern California and is currently based in San Diego. While seaweed has traditionally been harvested by indigenous communities, the industry has begun to expand across the West Coast. Along the California coast are abundant kelp forests with over 100 edible species. I was living in Northern California and I got exposed to、um, wild foragers of seaweed. And it was kind of this, you know, light bulb moment of, you know, why aren't more people talking about local seaweed and all the native species of seaweed that can grow along the West Coast? So, when we think of untapped tools in the fight against climate change, seaweed might not be the first thing that comes to mind, but it absorbs carbon emissions, it grows quickly, and it provides a habitat for different marine species. The algae is also regenerative, meaning it actually improves the environment in which it is grown. Seaweed is a super sustainable food. Just by nature of how it grows, it only needs salt water and sunlight to grow. So, unlike a lot of agriculture on land, it doesn't need fresh water, it doesn't need arable land, it doesn't need any kind of input or additive or feed or fertilizer. So, that's really one of the reasons that Avery, my co founder, and I were so drawn to seaweed initially is that. It's truly one of the most sustainable foods that we can be eating. And then the role that it plays in kind of mitigating climate change is that as seaweed grows, you know, like plants and trees, it's using carbon to do that. And in the water, why that's so helpful is that as our environment, Kind of has more carbon dioxide. The oceans are actually absorbing a lot of that. And as the oceans absorb it, that's what leads to ocean acidification. Daybreak Seaweed wants to ensure that seaweed remains restorative and avoid some of the mistakes that have been made by the farming industry. They partner with fellow small food producers and regenerative ocean farmers. We think there's a lot of Potential benefit of seaweed farming as an industry growing. And we're also very cautious about some of the pitfalls that can happen when huge corporations kind of, you know, get in the game. But we, we really see there being a benefit to networks of seaweed farmers supporting each other and then networks of companies and organizations that support those farmers. As the industry really continues to grow, companies like Daybreak Seaweed hope that algae becomes a bigger part of the American diet. We've created a line of seasonings and spice blends, and we have pure seaweed flakes also that can really be incorporated into everyday dishes, like on top of scrambled eggs, on top of 
avocado toast thrown into baked goods or bread. Okay, so now all I can think about are seaweed burgers, seaweed dips, and seaweed cookies. Next time you're looking for a nutritious, climate-resilient meal, consider incorporating seaweed products into your kitchen. We may just be entering the era of algae. People often look for futuristic and innovative methods to increase sustainability. That goes for kelp as well as the cultivation of sea creatures. But according to a paper in the journal Nature that came out this spring, understanding indigenous fisheries through a historical lens can introduce more inclusive, just, and successful strategies for sustainable fisheries management. Oyster is kind of a sustainability buzzword these days. In addition to being delicious, oysters can clean water, and a strong oyster reef can provide a coastal barrier as we face sea level rise and stronger coastal storms. But over the last 200 years, about 85% of early colonial oyster reefs have collapsed. That's led many modern-day fisheries managers wondering, how can an oyster fishery be managed sustainably? This spring, a paper in Nature Communication showed that indigenous communities did it for millennia, Though oysters in general have been widely studied, Dr. Leslie Reeder Myers of Temple University set out with a team of archaeologists and indigenous researchers to pursue a new kind of study. Most ecological papers, um, including historical ecology papers, sort of start out with the idea that indigenous fisheries were very minimal, um, that they had very minimal impact on the ecosystems, um, and that they just were very small. Uh, And so as archaeologists and people who have excavated these massive, massive um, piles of oyster, lightly fished just doesn't seem to really describe what we've been witnessing in the archaeological record. So we wanted to kind of explore how many oysters might have been coming out of the ocean and out of estuaries before Europeans started fishing. Oyster mounds and shell collections are actually a common feature of indigenous settlements on the coastline. By examining archaeological sites in North America and Australia, Reader Myers and her team began measuring the amount of oyster harvesting that took place in the past. Getting a consistent measurement on these various sites was a challenge, but an undeniable conclusion emerged. Indigenous oyster fisheries were far from minimal. In places like California or the southeastern United States, quantities of oyster that are pretty comparable to what are being consumed today Some sites in modern-day California, Florida, and Georgia show millions and billions of oysters. And the paper's analysis shows that these fisheries persisted between 5 and 10,000 years, long before modern boom and bust fisheries took over. Some things that contribute to long-term sustainability feel obvious. Of course, there were lower population levels, and indigenous fisheries didn't export as much. But I think the thing that's really most important is just how they were behaving in the ecosystem. Um, things like they were typically only fishing uh, really close to the shore in relatively shallow waters. Um, So there would have sort of always been a reservoir, a reproductive reservoir of oysters. So they were, you know, not using dredges. They weren't, um, you know, they were kind of leaving that fundamental habitat intact. Uh, So I think that's probably, you know, the one thing that allowed people to continue uh, harvesting really enormous numbers of oyster. Today, many policymakers, scientists, and fisheries managers are interested in restoring oyster reefs and embracing sustainable management. 
This research shows that turning to indigenous knowledge will be key to effective stewardship of fisheries. But Reader Myers emphasizes that indigenous knowledge is more than just a tool for improving ecosystem health. We often talk about the importance of indigenous knowledge or the importance of traditional knowledge uh, in terms of what it can provide for sustainability or provide for um, improving ecosystems. But ultimately, that often comes down to, you know, how can we use indigenous knowledge to help fix the mess that's been made? Um, And instead, what we were kind of arguing was that including indigenous people in decisions is a question um, of social justice and environmental justice. Hopefully, also, it will be good for ecosystems and good for economies and good for fisheries. Um, but the the goal there really is to to you know return something that has been taken away. That means welcoming indigenous collaborators and returning control of oyster fisheries to indigenous people who may want to reconnect with these ancestral ecosystems. We'll be right back with more Meet and Three after a brief break. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome back to Meet and 3. Up next, we move to Maine to tackle a controversy right at the intersection of climate change, species preservation, technological innovation, and cultural heritage. Bianca Garcia talks to the man in the middle of Maine cuisine and an innovator entangled in the ropeless technology of lobster trapping. Can you ethically enjoy some buttery Maine lobster without risking the survival of the North Atlantic right whale? What might seem to many as an obscure mismatched rivalry, lobster traps versus whale, is actually the subject of multiple recent court cases, controversial press, and deep concern among residents in fishing towns all over New England. As I'm talking to you right now, my lobsterman is driving up in his refrigerated truck. He just caught this fresh lobster, and um, he's bringing in 1,500 pounds of beautiful, beautiful lobster, cold water, and, and now we're going to turn these into sandwiches. My name is Steve Kingston. I am the owner of the Clam Shack in Kennebunkport, Maine, and I am the king of lobster rolls. If you can't take Steve's word for it, you can at least listen to Food & Wine magazine, which endorsed the Clam Shack for having one of America's best lobster rolls. Steve's pride goes way beyond his creations. It has much to do with what it means to be a part of an entire lobstering community in Maine. 
One of the things that always blows me away, you know, the, the guy that just dropped off 600 pounds of lobster to the clam shack today is fifth generation, right? So his grandfather's grandfather's grandfather was the first one to start fishing the waters off of Kenny Bunkport within his family. I mean, that is, that is some serious heritage, right? The trickle down of all the people that that keeps employed is unbelievable. It goes way beyond um, the scope of just a lobsterman and his family or a seafood market and a guy selling lobster rolls on the side of the road. For Maine's coastal economy, lobster is indispensable. According to the Maine Department of Marine Resources, 2021 saw record-breaking profits in the lobstering industry, bringing in $725 million and 100 million pounds of lobster. Right now, the industry is under immense stress. Just recently, in early July 2022, a federal judge ruled that the government body in charge of regulating lobster fishing, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, also known as NOAA, was not doing enough to protect the North Atlantic right whale. This is likely to lead to more intense restrictions on lobstering. The right whale, named just so because it was the right, as in correct, whale to hunt before it was banned in 1935, has been on the endangered species list since the 1970s. With less than 350 members of the species left and less than 100 breeding females, they are the focus of many conservation efforts. So what does this have to do with lobstering? Lobster trapping gear poses a huge threat to whales, which can swim through and get entangled by ropes. The resulting injuries can inhibit their swimming, breathing, eating, or mating. Lobster Lift LLC is a team dedicated to creating lobster trapping technology that would allow for right whales and lobstering to coexist. I spoke to co-founder Cormac McCarthy to get a better idea of the problem. Gulf of Maine waters are warming faster than, a lot, than most places in the rest of the world. And so one of the things that the North Atlantic right whale species has to do is now travel a bit further to get their food. Uh, so they're going all the way up into the Gulf of St. Lawrence and the Bay of Fundy to eat. The warming waters made that area much more profitable for fishermen out there. And so they really started to increase their production and, and, um, and fishing capabilities up there. And so that also ended up playing a big factor in the number of entanglements that we ended up seeing. When it comes to the death of the right whale, it's hard to point a finger at any one party, especially when you weigh in climate change and the survival of a heritage industry like lobstering in Maine. Still, 2016 data from the Marine Mammal Commission shows that almost half of right whale deaths have been caused by ship strikes or fishing gear entanglements. Ship collision-related deaths have decreased significantly since then, but entanglement remains high. According to both Cormac and Steve, one thing is for sure. One thing that shocks me in this is that if people understood how much the lobstermen care about the ecosystem, the, the sea life, the right whale, quite honestly, if, if they had any idea how much they care for the sustainability of this item and it's not just this item it's their ocean it's the warming of the ocean and they're not just out there trying to you know take 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 from the ocean they love the ocean the more time you know we spend working with lobstermen and 
and getting to know them and spending time on the water with them, they they believe themselves to be honest people and good people, and they they're really not enjoying getting the finger pointed at them when they're they're not purposely doing anything wrong. As it stands, lobster traps work by sinking a metal cage with bait inside to the sea floor. That contraption is connected to buoys floating at the ocean surface by rope. That is the rope that the right whales get entangled in. Lobster Lift LLC is at the front lines of using technology to innovate a solution through ropeless lobster traps. So Lobster Lift is a robotic lobster trap retrieval system. So how Lobster Lift works is it's attached to the lobster trap itself and you essentially sink the whole system down to the bottom so there's nothing at the surface. And the boat comes by and when it wants to pick it up, it sends an acoustic signal similar to like a walkie-talkie to the lobster lift that's attached to the lobster trap. And it then allows a inflatable buoy or balloon essentially to inflate and create enough buoyancy to actually lift the trap up to the surface. And so the typical way that a lobster will do it is he'll be steaming up to the, to the location where there's sort of a, a pin dropped on the map. And when he's like about a mile out, he'll send the signal. And by the time he gets to the spot, he'll see the buoy at the surface and he'll hook on to the buoy, pull it up, and it, the, the trap is right there with it. And it works. At the time of the interview, Cormac told me that he had just had a successful demo with Noah, and they're excited about the technology. So is Steve. I think to myself, like, are you kidding me? Of course. I mean, I, th I think it's a brilliant um, concept, idea, but you can't expect an independent business guy in the state of Maine to finance that. Cormac agrees. So... Affordability is going to be a driving factor, and this is a piece of equipment that allows them to do their work. So if it, if it makes it so that it's you know not cost-effective for them to go out, it's there's no point in making it. Roughly, our systems are, are aiming to be at like the $500 per unit when we start production. And this is something that we expect to be subsidized a bit at the beginning just because there needs to be a solution. You know, the other the alternative is is either lobster not fishing or the North Atlantic right whale going extinct. It's crazy to think that that sweet golden lobster roll can be packed with so much politics. What fits in your hand and melts in your mouth is actually based with generational pride, existential worry, and a profound sense of hopefulness. Creating a more sustainable ecosystem requires a layered approach. It can involve implementing specific technologies like the Lobster LLC traps, as well as applying pressure on elected officials and industry leaders. Aviva Futornik takes a look at the systems controlling where our seafood comes from. She speaks with two Mainers who are pushing back against the privatization and industrialization of their coast in favor of a local, holistic approach to fishing. As Bianca explored in the previous segment, seafood is essential to Maine's culture and economy. People come to Maine to have their lobster rolls, see a lighthouse, and it is 
the fabric of our smaller communities along the coast. My name is Crystal Canny. I'm the Executive Director of Protect Maine's Fishing Heritage Foundation. The Foundation's mission is to protect the ocean for all those who are living in it, which includes supporting small owner-operator aquaculture. Aquaculture is a controlled growth and harvest of underwater life, including fish, shellfish, plants, and algae. Put simply, it's farming in water. Aquaculture expands fish availability, improves food security, creates economic opportunity, and alleviates pressure on shrinking land-based resources. Aquaculture can be a sustainable solution to seafood farming, but it is also practiced on an industrial scale designed to maximize production and minimize costs. Large-scale industrial aquaculture threatens local communities and natural ecosystems. Maine's lax rules and regulations on aquaculture leases suggests they are more interested in attracting industrial aquaculture companies than fostering a small-scale sustainable operation. We believe that over five acres is large and can lead to industrial-scale aquaculture. For example, you could still have five-acre leases and several of them. In 2006, the maximum acreage that one could hold in the state of Maine is 250 acres, and now you can hold 1,000 acres. And we sell our waters in Maine for next to nothing. It's $100 an acre to lease part of the Maine coast, and you can hold that lease for 20 years, and you can transfer it without a mandatory public hearing. And right now, we're much more concerned about bringing in these industrial aquaculturists than we are about taking a long-term view of what we want for our most precious resource, which is the Maine coast. It's not just local fishing and lobstering communities at stake, but also Maine's endangered native salmon population. Open net pen aquaculture of Atlantic salmon can present tremendous problems to wild salmon. That's Dwayne Shaw, the executive director of the Down East Salmon Federation, a community-based conservation and restoration organization in easternmost Maine. He's talking about open pen finfish aquaculture, the practice of raising fish within large cages or nets exposed to the natural environment. And those have all been documented many times over in various locations, including Maine, in terms of pollution and um, disease and parasites. So, how do these organizations advocate for sustainable implementation of aquaculture? They put local interests first. So what may work in one community may not work in another. For example, Lubeck didn't want to pass the moratorium. That's fine. That's their decision as a community. Cutler wanted to pass it and doesn't want any aquaculture in their community. Local towns can pass water moratoriums to temporarily prohibit the development of large-scale industrial aquaculture. Crystal's Foundation has pitched moratoriums in a number of towns along the coast. But it really, you need to test the temperament of each community to see where they are. And in Maine, local control is also king. The protection of local fishing economies and the natural ecosystem is a result of communal, federal, and international cooperation. Duane's Federation introduced small aquaculture into the eastern Maine rivers to restore the wild Atlantic salmon population. They implemented conservation hatcheries, habitat conservation, dam removals, and pollution control that allow salmon to complete their runs, migrating from freshwater to spawn. So um, what we're doing, we have a conservation hatchery system, which is essentially a live gene bank. So we're 
the populations are depressed to the point at which they, there needed to be this intervention and triage. An intervention was taken to bring some of those fish into captivity to provide for eggs and progeny to reestablish them in the, in the wild. The work that we're doing to restore these fish is, is complex and comprehensive. It's holistic. It's uh, systems thinking. Crystal and Duane agree that the first step to implement change is to start an inclusive dialogue. One thing that needs to happen immediately, and we have been calling for it for two years, which is a statewide conversation that puts all the stakeholders at the table. As recently as June, Maine renewed a 20-year lease for Cook Aquaculture, a Canadian large-scale operator with little state regulation that was responsible for the deaths of 116,000 salmon last August. Securing a seat at the table sounds like a reliable starting point. But organizers face an uphill battle as the state continues to prioritize corporate interests. That's our show. Thanks for listening. Learn more about our guests and topics from this week in our show notes. Special thanks this week to Sophie Telkov Burko, Anna Canny, Bianca Garcia, and Aviva Futornik. Meet and Three is produced by Matt Patterson, Dylan Hoyer, and me, Katie Mosman Wadler. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet and Three is powered by Simplecast. Meet and Three is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say hey, write us at ideas at meetand3.nyc. That's all spelled out. 